Last week we looked at a familiar section in our study in Exodus, um, this, this place, this encounter that Moses has with God in the form of a burning bush at the mountain of God. And if you weren't with us, we looked at two questions. The first one is this, where am I? This question addressing the obvious displacement that Moses has. He finds himself in one born of such promise and purpose only to find himself in the middle of nowhere, uh, tending borrowed sheep, but really a dead-end job with no plans of return uh, to the palace and the prestige of his youth. The second question is, who am I? Is a look at the, ad- the identity crisis that Moses finds himself in. Once a person of really two people, an Israelite by birth, uh, an Egyptian by adoption, and now he finds himself the adopted son of a Midianite, a foreign uh, priest in, in a foreign land with a foreign family trying to recreate himself. Really a pe- not, not enough, no longer an Egyptian, no longer an Israelite, not really a Midianite, just a person of no people and no place with no true identity, lost. Ultimately, we discussed how all of this changes when God finds him there in the desert wandering on a hillside as he encounters the living, true God. Everything he felt about himself, all of his past, his identity, where he is, is overshadowed in a moment as God comes closer than ever and Moses is moved in awe and wonder. But he doesn't stop there. He's moved to also respond as we are called to respond, as we talked last week, with reverence, removing our sandals as Moses does uh, as he's in the presence of God and with submission. Here I am as he invites the Lord to give him purpose and to give him a destination and that he follows in that. Moses' no doubt, uh, Moses's doubts and insecurities as to who he is are swallowed up in this encounter. As God calls his name and invites him to come close. In our text this week, we continue to unpack this encounter. And and I invite a new question for us this morning. uh, And it's this question of, who is God? And I know we answered that, if anybody memorized it when we did the catechism. Um, But in this context, as Moses is encountering uh, the, the holy God, he's, he's asking God questions, and God responds. And, and the things in which he says in this text, I think, are good for us to hear. Um, so uh, if you'll pray with me now, um, and then we'll get right into the text. Lord God, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, even as we taste from your table this morning. This bread will not sustain um, as you spiritually promised to sustain us. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. Father, I pray even now you would make us hungry for your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. And this is through Jesus who is the bread of heaven, that we pray. Amen. So as we talk about this text, keep in mind that really the highlight of today is the table. That after this, as we finish our time in in the Word today, that we get to come and we get to dine with Christ. 
in a spiritual way to, to be renewed, to be strengthened as we experience communion with Him. So in the text here this morning in Exodus 3, God reveals Himself to Moses as the God of His Father in chapter 3. And as He unfolds His plan for Moses and His people, the question Moses brings is, which God of my fathers? In verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is His name? What shall I say to them? Seems an interesting question. Um, But we've got to remember here that much like Moses, this is a people who have been displaced for 400 plus years in Egypt, removed from Joseph and and, and the sons and and the promise and all of these things. Uh, And and they are really a polytheistic mess. If you're not familiar with that big term, it's, it's the belief in multiple gods. This is just a mess that they've found themselves in living in Egypt quite possibly like the world around him, knowing the names of many gods that they've heard prayed and worshipped to and, and idols erected for and, and, and as people of Egypt caused to maybe to bow down and worship and, and give tribute to. And perhaps like the world believing in all of these gods that are somehow connected and all attuned to one another and tied into one great universe and draws power from you and them and and somehow empowers you to live and look for signs and and different things. A, A mess, really. At worst, they've forgotten all about the God that brought them into the land of Egypt that Moses has encountered here. At, at, at best, they're living under some sort of heretical distortion about who, they, who, who this God is. So at worst, they've forgotten. At best, they're living under some distortion as to who this God is and what He's here to do. Growing up in Egypt had taken its toll. And some would still recall possibly tales of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of His promises. but the God that they worship had become one of many gods their fathers had become accustomed to. So Moses questioned, what's the name of the God that has sent me? It's an important and distinguishing characteristic. The answer that we receive here, I am who I am. And so if we just read that in English, we might say, is that a riddle? Is that some kind of, what do we, I am who I am? It's kind of mysterious kind of thing. But, But if we delve into the language here a bit, Literally what he's saying is, I cause to be because I cause to be. What's important is because the people of God in that moment will will know his name, by his name, the saying of his name here. Moses is not coming with the name of some new God. So as many gods as they had come to know their names by him saying Yahweh, the, the proper name of God here for the Hebrew they know immediately, okay, well, this is not a new God that they're introducing us to. This is the God of our past. This is the God of promise who promised to deliver them from oppression. Not one who speaks Hebrew. Anyone speak fluent Hebrew in here? Um, the significance of the name of God that, that God gives to Moses here. And here's an important side note for just us to keep historical context. So Moses is credited with writing the first five books of the Bible, right? So we read the book of Genesis, written by Moses, into the book of Exodus, written by Moses. So all of this collective five books 
penned by Moses under the inspiration of God. And so in, in Genesis, we see a lot of names for God. So Moses is familiar with many, many historical names. Uh, El Elyon, God Most High, Genesis, 4, um, Genesis 14. Pahad Reachak, Fear of Isaac, Genesis 31. El Shaddai, God Almighty, Genesis 17. 28, 35, 43, 48. El Roi, the God who sees me. Genesis 16. They're names of God that Moses would have been familiar with. But in the text, as we see all of that kind of unfolding in the book of Genesis and the story of God's people, there becomes a, a, a sense that Yahweh is lost in this time period. And, and it's not mouthed by the children of Jacob and the generations that preceded him. And so there's this sense that the, the author and writer of Exodus is trying to give you a window and a picture of how far people had come from the God of Israel. And in the writing and how he kind of makes all of these names, uh, including God's proper name in Genesis, available, but then there's this, this ghosting of it throughout the book of uh, through, through the mouths of Jacob's son where it's not mouthed. And then the generations preceding it in Egypt, we don't see it again until right here and right now. And it's almost as though Moses is saying, we had lost God. We had lost who He was. We had lost what He had promised. And so there's a sense in the writing that we get this sense that God is coming and reestablishing connection. And even the writer literally... or, or uh, through the literature, is saying to us there's been a time period where the people have, of God have wandered away from the one true God. And I want to show that in the writing by the absence of His name. The name is written here in Exodus 3 after a long absence. Who is God? Not the Egyptian God of the Nile that they worshipped in Exodus 1, we see the plot of the Egyptian king to sacrifice the Israelite babies and throw them in the river, literally as tribute to the Nile. And later in Exodus 2, the princess naming our star here, Moses, as one who had been plucked from the ri river. No doubt the princess is giving the credit in this moment to the wrong God, not the God of Israel who has floated Moses on a basket of safety into her waiting arms in order to position him in both Israel and Egypt. No, a gift from the God of the Nile in her mind. In verse 14 of our text, tell them I am sent you, Yahweh. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hezites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So I spent far more time studying Hebrew this week than I ever have. And I hope you're impressed by that. Um, and what I mean by that is I spent a lot of time in a tool that I use, Logos, which is a Bible software that kind of helps me um, a lot of times. And if you're looking for a Bible study software, I highly recommend it. It's great at breaking down the Scripture and helping you understand all of this. And 
The Hebrew language, though, um, as many of you guys know, is not like English. Things that are communicated through the text using that language mean a lot. And unless you go and kind of dive into the names and the forms and, and the tenses and all that stuff, you can miss some of the message that's being presented here. The author's intent could get lost in the English translation. Um, without getting into all of that, because it took me hours to wrap my head around it, um, I want to give you kind of the conclusion in some of this way uh, before we go to the table here. Is God answers Moses' question, who should I say sent me? What the NIV or some other translation uh, may translate, I am who I am, probably was actually heard by Moses as I cause to be because I cause to be, as we said earlier. Listen to this, though. As you hear that name and you say, and, like, who should I tell this people? As I go to this suffering people, who should I say sent, the, sent me? As the people who have suffered a long time in Egypt ask Moses, what is the name of the God who's coming to rescue us? God answers this way, the one who has allowed all of this to happen to you. I don't want us to miss that. For, just sit in that for a second and let it sink in. As an Israelite who may recall stories of a God of promise, but all they've ever really known is a God who left them in the hands of evil men to be oppressed. And now he shows up and he identifies himself as the one who is behind all of this. It begs the question, what, what could possibly make an Israelite at this point follow Yahweh? The language gives us even more than the name's meaning. The forms of these words cause us, to under, cause us to understand the original language that this is active in all of this, that God is active. This is not a passive kind of standing by, allowing this to happen. God is moving in time and space to allow the things that have happened to them. Referring to Yahweh as the creator and sustainer of all that exists, Lord of all creation and history, and in all that is, uh, is happening and has happened, God is seen as active and present in these historical affairs. The tenses give us that, that he's not passive or idly standing by to allow this, but these are active tenses that are being used in these words. He was there. He was active beyond in all of these things. God is not only powerful, but he is orchestrating all of this for his glory and the people's good. So as we think about this, this God that we're talking about here, which is it? Is God harsh and judgmental and oppressive? Is He loving? Is He a promise keeper? Is He a pursuer? It's a great question for us as the people of God here and now in our struggles and circumstances to begin to work out. If we find ourselves in hard or confusing times, and we find ourselves looking up to the heavens and asking that question. The answer here that we see is, He's both. To the Israelites, we see a God who disciplines His children and keeps His promises, who's active in the good and the bad, and He's moving His people to be refined and to know His name more clearly and to long for Him and love Him more deeply. To the Egyptians, He's one who keeps His promises as well. 
In a sense, if we look back at Genesis 12.3, he makes a promise to the Israelite people, but in that same promise, there's a, there's a promise to Egypt. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. There's a promise in there for both of these people, and we see that to the Egyptians. He's keeping his promise. I will systematically squash all of your false gods and bring my judgment for standing in the way of the promise that I made to my people. He goes on to say in verse 19 of our text, he knows, uh, God knows that He will not let them go. How does He know these things? Because He is the Creator and the Sustainer of all that exists. He is the Lord of both creation and history who brings both blessing and curse. So as we look at the Egyptians and we look at the people of God uh, and, and we prepare for the table this morning especially, we prepare our hearts. Maybe ask yourself this question. What had the Israelites done to deserve such rescue? Had they remained faithful during their trials? We see here, no. They had moved in next to the Egyptians. They had lived in the homes, they had taken on their pagan gods and their worship? Had they continued to follow the God who had so provided for their fathers as the great blessing showered of them, showered on them once had begun to wane? No. They had forgotten Him. What is so special about these people that they would receive blessing in Egypt curse? The answer is nothing. They were rebellious, fair-weather, idolatrous, just like, you and are, just like you and I are at times. Were they worthy of God's wrath and judgment? Yes, just like you and I are at times. The answer comes back, why would God give them blessing instead of curse? And the answer comes back to the promise. God is a God of promise. He makes promises to His people. And He keeps them. He's a covenant maker. And He's a covenant keeping God. In 2 Timothy 2.13 we read, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He has promised, and He cannot break this promise. The importance of that text for us is per perhaps we find ourselves this morning even in a season where you, like the people of God, feel abandoned by God. Left to fight against the ugliness and brokenness of this world. Left without answers or clarity to things that you desire and seek. And the question for us this morning is, do we believe that our God is the Creator and Sustainer of all that exists, as He says He is? That He's the Lord of all that is, and all that is happening, as He says He is, is He active and present in all of our affairs as He claims to be? And what should our response be to a God who has promised such things to us? To those who have been actively pursued by the God who causes all things to be the meal that we get to take this morning is set by Christ Himself. 
It's offered to all of those who will leave their idols and their pagan gods behind. And perhaps those aren't the god of Egyptians or something. Perhaps they're other idols. Work, family, career, money, all of these other things that at times... An idol can be anything, really. And if you believe, as I don't remember what author said this, I read in a book sometime, that your heart is an idol factory. It is constantly making idols and setting them up on shelves and holding them dear. I was just talking to Nancy before the service of, you know, our football teams often can be idols to us. And, and, and when we put them up on a shelf when they're doing well and we see them crushed and we're not doing well, it affects us emotionally. It affects us uh, how we're thinking, how we act towards other people. These are signs that, that we as a people are, are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We are prone to put anything in place of God and worship it instead of God. We're not unlike the Egyptians. We're not unlike the Israelites. We continue in the same vein because we are stained with the same disease of sin. And what this meal for us does this morning is it reminds us. It gives us opportunity to set our hearts and our minds around the one true God again. And we feed and dine with the King of kings, the one who causes all things to be, the one who has put us where we are, who sustains us as we stand, and who comes and rushes in with grace and mercy when we fall. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that we would see the gospel, the good news this morning, that you continue to pursue your people this morning. That you are causing, calling us to renounce our gods and our idols, the things that we have worshipped and put in place of you, and to return. I think of the, I think it's in passage in Jeremiah where it says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves wells, cisterns that cannot hold water. And we come this morning as your people confessing that passage, that truth, that we have forsaken you, the fountain of living water, the thing that satisfies, the thing that gives us joy and brings us health and wholeness, and we have given in to our temptations. We have given in to our personal struggles, and we have allowed them to command and lead us instead of You. We have not operated in obedience under the power of Your Spirit, but we have sought after our own good and our own wellness. We have sought to take what is ours, We have sought the temporal over the eternal, the moment for a lifetime of grace. Father, would would You bring us back to Yourself? We would renounce the cisterns that we have dug for ourselves and we would return to the one true God. Lead us back to the well of living water even as we take this table this morning and we pinch this bread and we, and we taste this juice, Father, spiritually, would You nourish us? Would You meet us where we are and remind us 
of all that is ours in Christ. All that You have promised to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.